episode 127. You feel me? We out here, you know what I'm saying? We almost getting close to, to 150, you feel me? But on this episode of Hella Black, it's a panel discussion that I had about a week and a half ago, you feel me, where I talked about my own politicization, my own evolution as a human being, um, and why, you know, we must become our own liberators, you feel me? That's the call of the day. Ain't nobody going to liberate ourselves, you feel me? We got to have unity, unity, and liberate ourselves, you feel me? Our oppressor ain't going to liberate us. We got <laughs> decades of history of them showing that they ain't going to do that, you feel me? So tap in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, you feel me? Go support the real. Sorry for the hard, hard stop. Uh, we're going to get started. Thank you so much for attending. Welcome, welcome. Thank you for carving out some time in your afternoon to chat with us. Um, before we get started, I just want to give thanks to the University of San Francisco. Um, this is the It's Not On Us, It's In Us. It's a series of conversations dedicated to unraveling the complexity and courage work of Black organizers, uh, food justice, and public health. The event, like I mentioned, is supported by the University of San Francisco's Six Plus U Racial Justice Initiative and is generously funded by the Jesuit Foundation. Um, just a little bit about Six Plus U. It is a group of six projects which together create opportunities for us to address racism, anti-Black racism by humanizing programming that educates the whole person, builds our capacity to be a community for others, um, develops a diverse, socially responsible learning community, but lastly, this project really is to create uh, racially just spaces through this third pandemic and beyond. Of course, you know, we had to flip that a little bit and bring real revolutionaries to the stage uh, and to the Zoom room. So I'm excited to kind of dive in a little bit more. My name is Alexandra Gassessa. I'm a now second year PhD student here at UC Berkeley in the Department of African American and African Diaspora Studies. Um, I am a Californian through and through by way of Ethiopian immigrants. So I'm excited to uh, bring in the elements of Pan-Africanism, which is both uh, in my professional and personal and professional and academic pursuits. So um, I will pass it over to Emmanuel. I'm also very excited that I've been looking forward to this. If I stutter and stuff, it's because I have just been looking so <coughs> forward to this. And the last part I wanna add before I pass it over, uh, this is supposed to be a very casual dialogue session. So I want y'all to use the chats, you know, feel free to use the Q&A session or the Q&A box uh, in the spirit of call and response uh, on that same energy of African wisdoms and practices. You know, we really want to embody that in this pandemic virtual realm. So with that, I will pass it to Emmanuel. Thank you. Hey, all. Uh, my name is Emmanuel. Um, I am a master's candidate for public health at the University of San Francisco for community practice. Um, <clears throat> I work as an assistant project manager for um, a San Francisco-based organization called Into Action that works in Bayview, which is a historically Black neighborhood. Uh, we work in the intersections of community and economic development. Um, so the conversation that we're about to have, um, it's honestly is, is definitely something I'm excited to have because it falls really to sort of the passions and, and the um, experience I carry and sort of the passions that me and Alexander continue to talk about um, the, the importance of sort of uh, cross-breeding community impact with economic impact and how do we uh, create these new lenses to identify what that looks like in and um, outside of this capitalistic world that we live in. Um, with that being said, um, I'm going to pass it back to Alex uh, to sort of introduce um, our special guest for the evening. 
Yeah, well, uh, excited to introduce the comrade, the homie, the brother in the struggle uh, of us. Uh, our second dialogue session uh, is titled Black Heartwork, the work that keeps on giving, which I think embodies who Abbas is. Um, he is a new African Muslim educator and organizer who co-chairs People's Programs, an Oakland-based new African, pan-African organization. He also co-hosts Hella Black Podcasts, co-founded the Fannie Lou Hamer Black Resource Center. I want to emphasize- Hey, don't forget the Black. Podcast. Fought for that black, you know. Don't forget the black. Absolutely, uh, which I very much, much like other black graduate and undergraduate students, reap direct benefit of uh, here at UC Berkeley and taught African American studies here for over four years. He's also uh, a co-host and producer for Press TV. Abbas is a cultural worker, culture worker who follows the tradition of black radicalism that calls for the liberation of all Africans and oppressed peoples. Like I said, I was going to be extra in the introduction, and I just want to say the journey that I've had with Abbas from 2018 to today uh, is just a testament of the continuous hard work necessary for our people and our communities. And I am so excited to hopefully illuminate you all the way I was once illuminated uh, and that we can come together and build this work. Um, but with that, I will. Oh, actually, I have a check-in question um, that you can also add to your introduction. I'm curious, <laughs> what is a food that brings you comfort? Assalamu alaikum. Peace. Uh, it's an honor to be here uh, in conversation with y'all. You feel me? As we talk about, you know, becoming our own liberators, because that's the, the call for today. As we're seeing, uh, fascism is here. It's been here uh, and we got to fight. We got to fight and we got to organize. So hopefully by the end of this conversation, we could all have a, a solid understanding of how we can become our own liberators. Because what we up against is uh, one of the biggest enemies ever known to humanity. And we're seeing it time and time again, mass shooting, mass shooting terrorist attack after terrorist attack. Um, so we, we must become our own liberators, you know, but to transition that into uh, what food is bringing me some comfort uh, lately, especially, you know, after Ramadan has been, you know, having dates, you know what I'm saying? And um, the spiritual significance of, of starting the day with, with dates and, and also, you know, breaking your fast during Ramadan with dates, you know, when you uh, at the mosque and uh, call the prayer go off and you're looking around and it's all Muslims next to you with that same date in their hand. Everybody just fasted that whole day and everyone's breaking their fast together. So uh, the dates have been um, very important for me spiritually. And it just kind of shows you it's a, it's a good metaphor uh, to this capitalist system that tells us to always indulge, indulge, indulge. After you fast for 15, 16 hours and you have, you know, three dates and a, a, sip, of, a sip of water, you're feeling pretty good. You're like, man, I ain't even really hungry no more. I ain't even... I ain't even really thirsty, so it just shows to show you, you feel like spiritually in this fight uh, for new African liberation. So dates is dates is my answer. Am I supposed to ask them back, or I want to hear y'all now? I could I could probably add in one of it's funny that you bring up dates because my mother loves dates like nonstop. She eats it constantly. It's like her. And so a lot of people have like Kit Kats or whatnot, but for her, dates are her special little uh, treat that she carries for herself. Uh, but for me, um, speaking about my mother, um, really the thing that brings me comfort is my mom's cooking. Um, that it, There's something beautiful about an Ethiopian woman being able to uh, imbue love in something that she creates every day. And so when I get a chance to uh, go back to Sacramento where I call home, uh, there's something beautiful about me sitting down, having a conversation with her, um, and eating the food that she's worked hard to create for me. So um, 
I would say the thing that brings me comfort is a conversation with my mother and eating whatever she creates um, in the kitchen. So I'll pass it to Alex. Yeah, I like food. So I feel like there are two things that bring me comfort, you know, with every entree, there got to be a dessert, but I'm recognizing I got to break up the, the, the indulgence. Um, I would say if it's a food that brings me comfort is my dad's spaghetti. Um, he like the story of how he got to mastering the art uh, really comes from his experience as an Ethiopian immigrant with a few dollars in his pocket and trying to make some food in a college dorm that had no heater and a one one heat stove. Um, so I feel like he's perfected the art from transitioning, not from ragu, but making sauce from scratch, uh, although still using uh, store-bought noodles. Um, his pasta brings me a lot of joy, especially and comfort uh, in light of, you know, there are, I didn't realize there are one million ways. And I also think, you know, East Africans make pasta better than the Italians. That said, <laughs> um, I also feel like the other thing that brings me comfort is uh, I'm part Greek and my grandmother uh, makes these Greek cookies called kuluria, which with the right type of tea, you could really just eat that all day. So I feel like those two things bring me comfort, especially in my now first year done with grad school, I could just go for a really good bowl of spaghetti and some cookies to kind of wrap it up. <laughs> yeah. Um, on the topic of food and sort of the the history that it carries, right? So the experiences that it carries from dates to spaghetti to random cooking that your mother makes, um, we would love to know more about sort of your experience and the journeys and the milestones really within your journey that have led to your politicization. Um, I'm pretty sure folks that are new to your work um, hear the passion within uh, the statements that you've that you provided and sort of the, the wisdom that you're about to provide with us. So I'm curious about what are the milestones that have carried your journey to the point that you're at right now? Um, how did you become Abbas? What does that politicization look like? Yeah, definitely the evolution of self and truly trying to find my humanity, you feel me? Because that's what we have to do as revolutionaries is find our humanity. And that's something that recently, you know, I feel like I've begun to find my own humanity within myself throughout this this struggle, you feel me? Because that's what it is. That's what this this life is, is struggle, right? Um, so, you know, growing up in the Bay Area, uh, going to De La Salle in Concord, California, and obviously for a lot of us growing up in the Bay Area, Oscar Grant, you know what I'm saying? The, the murder and the brutal execution of Austin Grant while his hands was behind his back. Uh, that, you feel me, left an impact on a lot of us. You feel me, like growing up taking BART, that's a, a regular staple, you know what I'm saying? And dealing with racism, I remember my high school teacher is, uh, his name is Mr. Guthrie. And uh, he was, you know, I was talking in class, uh, it was game day, you know what I'm saying? So I had my jersey on, you feel me? And uh, he says, you better shut up before you act like, uh, before you end up like Oscar Grant. You feel me? I, I, I'm heated. I'm pissed. You know what I'm saying? But yeah. at the same time, in my political evolution at that time, I'm like, man, I want to fight. I want to fight him. You feel me? Like that's that's my natural reaction. So I'm like, man, I got this jersey on. <laughs> mm-hmm. You feel me? I got I got to play this. I got to play this game. You know what I'm saying? That that was dehumanizing. I should have whooped his ass. You feel me? <laughs> like mm-hmm. I should have just on, on GP. You know what I'm saying? But that was, I, I didn't have my humanity yet. I didn't recognize my humanity yet. You know what I'm saying? So that was an experience and evolving. And getting recruited uh, to play rugby at UC Berkeley, you know, and coming from Concord with, uh, you know, a lot of white boys and, and whatnot, I, I was like, oh, Berkeley, man, I made my way out. You feel me? It's, they talk about Berkeley like it's just this uh, uh, safe haven, you know, this Kwame right, uh, right. said the uh, liberal ghetto, white ghetto of the West. Um, but of course, 
feel me, being pulled over by UCPD, uh, harassed by UCPD, you know, getting in fights, uh, you know, partying and whatnot with the my boys, talking too much, you know what I'm saying? So, and then uh, getting politicized, taking Robert Allen's class. He was one of my uh, first black studies professors, you know what I'm saying? Um, and getting politicized from him and Trayvon Martin happening, you know what I'm saying? And then uh, Michael Brown happening. At that time, I'm having that political growth, that political evolution, and I'm able to connect these dots, you feel me, of what's going on in this society. I'm like, man, I got to do something. <laughs> I, can't, I can't just sit back here and keep my mouth shut. I can't just sit back here and just keep playing this sport. You feel me? I got to I gotta do something, you feel me? So after the uh, brutal murder of Michael Brown by that white supremacist police officer, that pig, feel me? Because that's what he is. He's a pig. Uh, after that, I decided, you know, I, I got I to gotta really do something. You feel me? I went protesting the streets, just walked outside. I saw a protest was going on. BSU. Uh, involved with the organizing there and really there was this contradictions that was showing up in my life you know i'm this student athlete i'm playing the sport uh and at the same time i'm protesting you feel me and the assistant athletic director his name is ryan cobb i think he still worked there you can look him up you know he, he gives me a call he said why are you protesting you can't be doing that essentially he was trying to trying to stop me from protesting so i'm like you know it's my senior year you know i was just recovering from injury i was about to start and i'm like man i got all these races on my team i'm like man i, I gotta join this movement and at that moment, it was one of the uh, scariest decisions. You know what I'm saying? I, I played for the USA team when I was 18, traveled to South Africa to play, like, sports. If you were an athlete, you feel me? Especially at a high level, like, that's your whole identity. So, for me, it was a scary moment taking that leap. Uh, but by the grace of the law, it was one of the best decisions I ever made um, in terms of my politicization. So, you know, we constantly going to be studying, constantly being uh, – we got to evolve. And that's one thing in my life that has been is a constant evolution, a constant growth. Sometimes yeah. you take four steps forward and then, you know, a few steps back, you know what I'm saying? That's why I struggle. Uh, but we got to keep studying and always be a student of revolution, a student of the revolution until yeah. the day we die. We got to study like our life depend on it. So that's find what I'm studying and put it into my daily life. That, that's uh, theory and practice, <laughs> as I like to say. Thank you for bringing that up. I mean, painting that picture, it really brings up sort of the, the urgency of what's happening even currently right now, right? This is, we're just speaking about things that have happened within the past 10 years. Um, and, you know, you as a student uh, choosing to find um, solutions, even though you know that it's not going to benefit you as an individual, you know, it's going to benefit the people at the, in the long run. Um, and I, I want to, I know one of the things that, that you were able to sort of conjure up with a group of folks that have the same passion, that same righteous anger, uh, was the Fannie Lou Hamer Black Resource Center, uh, which was a powerful statement for an institution to invest into something that is dedicated to Black folks, um, especially within this heightened urgency that we're carrying right now. So could you speak more about what the Fannie Lou Hamer Black Resource Center is um, and sort of the goals of that service and uh, what was that sense of urgency at that time that made you all consider that this is something that we definitely need for uh, Black folks within Berkeley. I, I also want to ask too, how you arrived there. Like, I feel like there's a lot of beauty in like, ah, this created, but like, how did you conjure the vision with these folks, like as organizers to get to that, that deliverable or that result? Yeah. I mean, the fight for a Black Resource Center, you know, it started before us, before it was even, you know, students, you know what I'm saying? It was uh, students before us that had the ideas of, of cultivating a Black Resource Center, you know what I'm saying? So we just met uh, where the contradictions, you feel me, like where we're seeing the, the, the repression and the raising of consciousness, you feel me, we can garner all that energy, you know what I'm saying? We could get that energy that 
of people uh, protesting, of people uprising. We can begin to organize these people. You feel me? Instead of just being reactionary and just doing whatever and breaking windows. Yeah, there's time to break windows. I ain't mad at it. I'm at it, especially if it's Wells Fargo or this uh, colonial institutions. But how do we get our people organized, right? Yeah. So what we did, you know, uh, at Ferguson, uh, a brother named uh, Tef Poe, I believe, he came from Ferguson to Berkeley. He said, "Why y'all? Why y'all ain't doing nothing? <laughs> we doing all this in Ferguson, y'all ain't doing nothing here in Berkeley. Y'all supposed to be in the Bay Area, you right next to to Oakland, you right next to the home of the Black Panther Party. So, yeah. so what y'all finna do?" Uh, you know, so we made 10 demands for institutional institutional change and we forced we forced them. <laughs> it was by our action. Even that wasn't just some, oh, yeah, let's, let's make a resource center. We had to fight. We had to fight and we had to organize for that. We had to uh, put our bodies on the line. You know, Cal Day, where we had black students lined up, you know, arm in arm and not letting, uh, you know, these people visiting the campus go through. You know what I'm saying? To bring awareness to our cause. You know what I'm saying? From shutting down the Golden Bear cafe which is one of the main campus eateries and hitting the money in the pocket you feel me that's a, a restaurant that makes probably fifty thousand dollars a day that's probably a bad day for them you feel me they'd be making money you know yeah. so we began to organize for institutional change because shoot when i was a student there in the african-american student development office four or five people could fit in there and if i'm in there you know i, I ain't the smallest person you know not as many people gonna fit in there you know so if we don't have a place for us to study and we don't have a place for us to organize how can we really begin to combat uh, white supremacy on campus, but also in the broader community? And it was always the goal of the Fannie Lou Hamer Black Resource Center to be connected to the black community in Berkeley, to be connected to the black community in Oakland, uh, Emeryville and Richmond, you feel me? It wasn't just, oh, this bourgeoisie black student having a, a bourgeoisie space for themselves. No, it means taking the resources from the campus and putting it into the hands of the people, you feel me? And doing that to organize our people towards liberation taking the resources from this colonial institution and bringing to the people yeah. a small uh, type of i don't even want to call it a reparation but you know we got to take the resources and give them to yeah. the masses of our people yeah uh it sounds like y'all took like, like a very tactical um approach to figuring out how do you leverage the resources of an institution and benefit the people at large um how has that sort of experience inform the work that you do currently? Um, are you using sort of those similar tactics in sort of the, the people's program, uh, whether that be that podcast, um, in all these different fronts that, that you've been doing the work, how have you uh, been able to leverage the tactics of being able to sort of strip away any resources that an institution is using and sort of give it back to the people when, when they need it the most? Uh, could you elaborate more about what those tactics look like for, for folks? Yeah, I mean, as as revolutionaries, as people uh, attempting to be revolutionaries, because ultimately it's the people who decide if you're a revolutionary or not, we use scientific reasoning and scientific thought to guide our actions, you know what I'm saying? So as students, you know what I'm saying, we we organizing, but then I'm like, we kind of having these contradictions, like, oh, we're just doing stuff for students, you know what yeah. I'm saying? Uh, uh, me and my, my comrade, my brother, uh, Delancey, we was organizing with the African Black Coalition, which is a coalition of BSUs, and we was doing heavy student type of organizing, you know, so we're learning different things, you know, trial and error, trial and error, trial and error, but we're seeing the contradictions in real life <laughs> show up, you know what I'm saying? So if, if we scientific with our thinking, you know, I don't even think we would have said we were scientific at that point, but it just speaks to our own uh, evolution and political growth. Uh, but we saw the contradictions of, oh, we're only doing this for black students. Now we need to go do something for the community. You know what I'm saying? And then opening and reading to die, to die for the people by Huey Newton.
um, Merritt College campus, right? Oh, you know, we seen kind of cool. You see Berkeley is three percent black on a good day, <laughs> so we're taking we're seeing these contradictions. Like, all right, we're reading this, we're experiencing the contradictions of like bourgeoisie black student organizing. Now, how do we actually build a real revolution? A real revolution will always be with the masses of the people. It'll start in the ghettos across America, you feel me? So how do we build a program, a people's programs eventually, right? Um, how do we build a program in the community to begin to actually support the community, right? And under the realm at that point of survival programs, which you know we evolved into decolonization programs. Mm-hmm. So that was part of the, the process, all right, of learning as a student, okay, these things, yeah, it gave us skills, it gave us different experiences, but ultimately, <laughs> ain't no revolution just going to be on the campus. The revolution yeah. going to be in the masses of the people. Yeah. Successful revolutions are with the masses of our people, <laughs> with the lumping proletariat. You feel me? So that's, that's what yeah. we, we got to do. That's the call of the day. That's powerful, man. Um, I, I'm wondering, you know, last year uh, you, you took Shahada, and I'm, I'm wondering how sort of the the revolution that you see within the people, how does that relate to the revolution you have within yourself? Um, <clears throat> could you explain more to folks uh, what Shahada is and what that journey looked like for you um, and, and sort of becoming the, the organizer and, and the committed person that you are today? You're breaking up a little bit, but I'm assuming you asked about internal revolution. Internal revolution and why uh, reverted to Islam. Mm-hmm. I think uh, whew, it's, it's a, again, it's been an evolution, a spiritual evolution. You know, I went to, at one point, a Baptist school, raised Catholic, you know what I'm saying? But then as I get politically educated uh, about the Catholic church in my age, man, it's ain't, <laughs> it's ain't for me. You feel me? The uh, colonial ways of the Catholic church, uh, the genocide that the Catholic church has perpetrated. Uh, we, you know, we ain't worshiping the same God. <laughs> That, that was a, a immediate contradiction. So I'm like, ah, mm. I ain't doing that Catholic stuff no more, right? Then it was kind of evolution. It was like, ah, it was Rastafari a little bit. Like, I was kind of in that realm. I'm like, ah, then I heard, you know, about Howie Selassie and the empire and him being supported by Britain and colonization. Mm. I'm like, I'm, yeah, that, that ain't working for me. Uh, then I kind of had a, a little bit of a, I don't know, an atheist in a sense, mm. um, just not really knowing what, what I feel like I always had God's presence in my life, but yeah. I wasn't able always to articulate it to where I might have been like, I, I don't know what there is, man. I just, I just trusted my gun and we're going to get this revolution cracking. You feel yeah. me? Uh, but I would say, you know, being a revolutionary or attempting to be a revolutionary is something that can be uh, pretty lonely. It could be uh, pretty isolating in some ways. And especially when we are up against the biggest imperialist beast, when we're up against uh, colonialism, <laughs> when we're up against uh, capitalism. Uh, if we say we for revolution, part of revolution is finding your humanity. Mm. Uh, part of revolution is also having spiritual discipline. If we don't have a spiritual discipline, <laughs> if your mind ain't strong, your heart ain't pure, your actions ain't going to follow. The heart is the center of your body. You feel mm-hmm. me? Your heart got a pump for you to think. <laughs> your heart got a pump for you to eat. Your heart got a pump uh, for you to, you feel me, for everything. Your heart ain't pure, you know? So for me, finding my humanity was through Islam uh, and, and finding ways to be a better person through Islam. That, that's definitely what helped me because, you know, having my own struggles and, and 
drinking too much and, <laughs> you know, and coping in different ways that weren't helpful for, helpful for me. You know, Islam helped give me discipline, uh, spiritual discipline, so everything else can follow. You feel me? When we say the word Shahada, Ashadu an la ilaha illallah wa Ashadu anna Muhammadan Rasulullah. We bear witness that there's only one God and that Muhammad is his messenger, right? And that statement itself <laughs> says, we do not worship any false idols. And when we think about false idols today in this American society, we think about the uh, devilish religion of capitalism because <laughs> capitalism is only a manifestation of shaitan himself, which means we reject capitalism. We, re we reject the false idols that capitalism puts out there. You feel me? The celebrity culture people is worshiping, the material items that uh, people are worshiping, right? Uh, so fasting, you feel me? Uh, fasting is also a way we prepare ourselves to fight, right? If you can have control over what you was putting in your body, if you can get your work done while you fasting, if you can go train while you fasting, if you can go on a panel while you fasting, when you're not fasting, everything else is easier. And when we're talking about revolution, there's going to be days where we're going to be able to uh, go without no food. There are going to have to be days like that. There's going to be days where we might not go without water, but I prepare myself internally how to fight, right? Yeah. Um, and that inner struggle. A lot of times as in the, the leftists, you know what I'm saying, these leftist spaces uh, talks about, oh, we got to fight the man. Of course, we got to fight the man. Oh, we got to fight the system. But how do we fight ourselves? How do we purify our heart? How do we have that energy high, right? You know, people hear jihad and they, you know, they get a little scared, but how do you have that energy high where you fight against yourself? How can we be expected to fight against the biggest oppressor known to humanity if we can't fight against ourselves? We can't be disciplined. So, the, you know, the Islamic program, five prayers a day, teaches you not to abuse time. What do we abuse all the time at, in this American society? Time, scrolling, you know, Netflix for 10 hours. And yeah, there's time, there's times for Netflix. Don't get me wrong. But how do we have discipline? How do we have discipline? How do we purify our heart? You feel me? So we is remaining steadfast in the struggle because there's a right way to struggle. There's a right way to struggle. So Islam has been very beneficial for me in terms of discipline and to translate into revolution. Now, ultimately, you know, I sleep good at night knowing that, all right, I'm commanded to fight for justice. I'm mm -hmm. commanded to fight for Allah's cause. You feel me? I'm, I'm commanded to fight for God's cause. Right. And if we were successful, when we will, inshallah. But, you know, if we ain't, I know God is the most just. And these colonizers, they are, they are going to deal with a punishment. So that has been my uh, evolution in terms of uh, spirituality. And we have to have spiritual, we have to have a, a spiritual discipline, spiritual discipline, in what, whichever way uh, you may understand your creator. And that is the history. It's the history of our people. We've always been a spiritual people. I think it's factual to say that atheism is anti-African. We've always had spirituality. So we, we must revive that because it's a spiritual war in ourselves. It's a spiritual war in ourselves. Mm. Absolutely. Listen, I knew we were going to be in a sermon today, but I'm feeling <laughs> a different level of motivation. Um, you know, it, it's actually funny. I, I've had so many conversations with Manuel um, on the realm of discipline. And, you know, when the pandemic started, I think a lot of people were upset that their routines flipped, not recognizing that those routines flipped to keep capitalism in production rather than a routine of discipline. And I think those two are so... Uh, disjoint but speak to the reality of like people's schedules and lifestyles changed not because they lost sight of I mean and some did guilty as, as charged but also the reality of how we're constantly in a state of production 
and moving for that re reason, not for our own spiritual growth and our own spiritual commitment and dedication. Um, so I appreciate that and that illumination you gave. Um, listen, I yeah, it's, it's, been, it's a part of like decolonization too, right? You know, absolutely. we talk about uh, understanding historical materialism. We, you know, especially from us who are enslaved, you feel me, in this land, like it's been a spiritual war. A third of us was Muslim, you know what I'm saying? So Christianity, this Euro-American Christianity was enforced on us, you feel me? So again, it's breaking the mindset of turn the other cheek, mm -hmm. <laughs> you feel me? Because even true Christianity ain't about turning the other cheek, <laughs> you feel me? And so we, we, we gotta uh, decolonize our spiritual practices, you know what I'm saying? And look back to history. And for me, that was part of looking back to Africa, <laughs> looking back to who uh, my ancestors were. You know what I'm saying? There's a good chance they was Muslim. Good chance. So that's, that's part of that historical decolonization process as well, of decolonizing the spirit, the spiritual world. You feel me? Because it's a war on our spirit. <laughs> it's a war on our spirit. Absolutely. Well, I appreciate that. I also want to say, like I said, we are getting a sermon today. So if y'all feel compelled to use the chat, Q&A, you know, I know you can't really react as much because we're in webinar style, but we want to make this as engaged as possible. That said, I am curious kind of now taking a step back and thinking about, so you've described so beautifully how in a lot of ways, universities have been almost microcosmic, if not subpar to the standard that the real conditions that are facing the masses of black folk, both materially, resource, I mean, it goes across, across the say, and you've built institutions and resources for people on and off campus, Right. But I'm thinking like one real challenge that a lot of black organizers and I think organizers in general, right, deal with is the direct realities of the material conditions and how it's disproportionately affected our communities. And on top of COVID, it's exponential. So I know people's programs have been a guiding light and not just our survival, but what Jaleel Muntakim offers as decolonization. So uh, for those who might not be familiar with people's programs and the work that you're doing, could you share with us kind of how it started I know that the practice of observing, uh, testing, implementing is very much in relationship with how the Fannie Lou uh, Hamer Black Resource Center got created. But how, what were those struggles like off campus where you don't have a university to kind of like, and it's harder because yeah, at least you're negotiating with somebody, right? Um, but how did people's programs kind of come to fruition? And um, how did you and like the dynamic group of comrades on the ground kind of make people's programs happen? Yeah, I mean, first and foremost, People's Programs is a product of hundreds of years of African and new African struggle. You feel me? From when the first European, first European crusader came to Africa and an African started fighting back from uh, Africans fighting back in the Middle Passage on the slave ships from uh, new Africans fighting back on the plantation to the organizations like uh, UNIA that uh, evolved in um to the organization for Afro-American unity, you feel me, that evolved into the Black Panther Party, that evolved into the Black Liberation Army, where we as a, a product, we as a product of history and the significant uh, epochs of our time. So first and foremost, I got to thank the people who <laughs> gave us, you feel me, handed that torch over to us, you feel me, and we were able to study history, um, study the past and apply it to the current, and that's the beauty of history. Uh, but looking at people's programs, it first started as People's Breakfast Oakland. Me and you know my brother, my comrade, uh, Delancey, you feel me? We we started with a Hello Black podcast. You feel me? So go tap in, go to our Patreon. You know what I'm saying? Support the real. But we started with Hello Black, and again, you know, I think me and him over time, we've been very good at 
looking back at ourselves and having uh, healthy criticisms that will move us forward and make us better humans and make us uh, better organizers. And we, you know, we're talking the talk of revolution. We're talking the top talk of political organizing, you know, and we in this little crate shipping container in West Oakland. And we going right outside and seeing houseless people, uh, new African houseless people laying out on the street. You know, so for us to be talking about this work, but not doing the action, <laughs> what is that? That's a contradiction. You know, so we left ABC and we created People's Breakfast Oakland with the ultimate goal of always becoming people's programs. But we never wanted to fake the funk. You feel me? We can't call ourselves people's programs and we don't have we only have one program. You feel me? It's, it's multiple programs. But, you know, by the grace of Allah, we have multiple programs going on right now in uh, 2022. So through that process, People's Breakfast Oakland, we started, you feel me? It was intergenerational from the start, looking from the past going over to uh, Delancey's auntie house where his mom is helping us cook, you know, us going grocery shopping at Safeway at 11 at night. And then, you know, his mama sending us back because we brought bought the wrong food to literally me thinking I'm going to be out there with a, a flat top stove grill and be making eggs at the same time. And Delancey's mom saying, nah, you can't do that. <laughs> that ain't going to work. You know, so again, trial and error, trial and error. That is the process. There's dialectical processes. There's scientific steps to building revolution you feel me so that's where we started with people's breakfast oakland then uh as we evolved as we growed uh people's programs where we now have various decolonization programs which is the evolution of survival programs that the black panther party first started right so Jalil mutakim uh a veteran of the black panther party a veteran of the black liberation army a former political prisoner and prisoner of war who got out of prison day one got to organizing uh in his book we are our own liberators um he said we need to evolve into decolonization programs. These programs are offensive in nature. It doesn't say just merely survive, but no, we can go on the offensive for new African liberation because that's what we have to do. And we do that through dialectical processes, you feel me, of building autonomous institutions within our own communities. You feel me, free health programs, free food programs, free grocery programs. And through, building, through that building process, the people will see, what is the state doing? <laughs> state ain't doing nothing for me, but these new Africans who are just like me, you know, who ain't, uh, you know, they ask us, we ain't a church, we a political organization, right? We, we a cadre organization, right? They see that, oh, we care about our own community, right? And through that process, they see the contradictions of the state, through the contradictions of the state. So that's offensive programs. Of course, you know, we have to be defensive at certain times and, you know, we got to defend ourselves, but they are offensive in nature and they build us towards Frolanon, which is building the front for the liberation of the new African nation, right? So all the uh, Black Panther Party says survival pending revolution, decolonization programs say we have the right, we have the right to go on the offensive for new African liberation. And we're gonna build decolonization programs with the end goal of uh, emancipating the land, of freeing the land, freeing the land from Euro-American control and establishing the Republic of New Africa. And that's the call of the day, we as new Africans, we have the right to be independent. We have the right to be free from Euro-American control and decolonization programs help us build uh, pre-revolution, <laughs> during the revolution and post-revolution to where now we have built the different skills that are needed to run a nation. You can't just, you know, they say, oh, we go go outside and the revolution just started. Nah, revolution is a culmination of positive action. It's a culmination of positive action. And that's what we're doing here at, at People's Programs. And, you know, we aren't the only ones doing this. Uh, people, uh, People's Liberation Program in Rochester. We have folks in Indiana. 
There's folks within the black belt doing this, right? This is a culmination of work um, that will take to build this unified front of wherever new Africans are, we need to build decolonization programs. And that's the call. That's the call for today. That's the call for today because we know that state, America, America and Africa are diametrically opposed. We ain't American. We ain't American. We have to do for ourselves. We have to do for ourselves and become our own liberators through that process of decolonization programs. That's how we do it. Absolutely. That's, that's a whole statement and a half. So I just want to really quickly acknowledge we are recording this. It will be shared and we have time for questions. So keep them coming in because we have a, a little bit of time carved at the end towards questions. Um, housekeeping part aside, though, I I want to illuminate uh, the newest addition to people's programs is the People's Community Mobile Health Clinic, uh, which couldn't have arrived at a more needed time, I think, not just because of COVID and all of the things that make very clear what the state is lacking in serving, but also um, how rampantly it has run across our community. So I'm curious, like, what was it like bringing, uh, especially mobile health clinics, like where, you know, you need practitioners, you need an actual vehicle, right? And like, um, what's been the biggest challenge in trying to not just get that resource together, but also our people behind something like this and more largely people's programs. Yeah, you know, people's community, our mobile health clinic, right? It's a, a product of growth, a product of evolution, a product of dialectical steps. You don't just make an organization and then day two, like, all right, let's create a health clinic. You feel me? It wouldn't have been possible if we didn't first have people's breakfast uncle. You feel me? It wouldn't have been possible if we didn't have these other programs where we were able to build the capacity of the organization, build the capacity to organize, right? So again, like I'm saying, a uh, revolution that follows dialectical steps, that follows scientific steps. Uh, if we didn't have some of the uh, political education that we had done, we wouldn't have been able to effectively bring this community health clinic into fruition, right? So I think that's first and foremost important for people to understand, you know, if you're getting new into organizing, you got to follow processes. You got to build that foundation because if you're trying to build a, a house with no foundation, you're trying to just start with a roof. That ain't make no sense. <laughs> you can't do that. You got to start with the foundation from the ground up. Um, so again, building this community health clinic, it's, it's a challenge. You know, it's, it's much more uh, difficult than just having a, a free food program. We talking about compliance law. We talking about federal law. We talking about California law. We talk about health insurance. We talk about uh, liability insurance. We talk about many conversations with lawyers, right? But that is part of the process of building a community health clinic. And this is part of the process of showing the people we were the first. Literally, before we even had the health clinic, we were the first uh, group to actually test people for COVID for free in the city of Oakland. New Africans were so. That is part of like the process of nation building, of being able to, when a, something is happening, we're able to <laughs> essentially put our forces out there, put, put the people's forces out there and put our decolonization programs that are already existing in the community to serve the people, right? So when we talk about <laughs> revolution <laughs> and get into the third phase, the three-phase theory, which you know I'll, I'll expand upon a little bit later, which is a people's war for new African liberation, right? We can't just be like, oh, we don't have no doctors. <laughs> How, how are we going to talk about revolution if we haven't at least built some of those uh, health care, if we don't have primary care, we don't have doctors, right? Because if we look at the health research, right, Black people don't have access to primary care. <laughs> and we know if you don't have access to primary care, your health is going to decline, right? So that, that's part of the process is understanding the material conditions 
and applying the material conditions to our action. You feel me? Put in the politic and the ideology and okay, we'll start small. We can only do three or four things, but let's do these three or four things right before we do the fifth thing. Let's do these five things right before we do the 10th thing, right? So it is growing and growing and growing and through, through our first clinic, that's, that's how we started that process, you know? Hopefully in the next few years, we're able to get a, a physical space, maybe five years from now to where we have a full uh, brick and mortar type place going on. Maybe it'll be sooner, you know, but it, it follows steps and processes and now it's, it's on wheels. So let's say something happens in Richmond and there's a, a, a need of support. We can literally deploy people's programs to another new African community and offer the community support, All right? And again, that shows the contradictions of the state. Why are we doing this? We're doing this because we love our people and we want our people's freedom. We want our people's complete independence from this white supremacist capitalist nation. The state, they don't care about your health, but mm. the people do, right? Again, that shows the contradictions and that helps us, you know, in this phase one, class struggle for national unity, uh, build national unity. Um. So nation building is a step-by-step process and there's a, an interesting development that, that in, in previous calls we, we discussed about how the People's Program recently secured a half acre of land um, in collaboration with the Fannie Lou. Um, could you talk more about, you know, as you were bringing up the subject of nation building that it's an incremental thing, right? You got wheels now from original uh, sending out food and whatnot, there's wheels, now there's land. Uh, could you speak more about sort of the vision that this piece of land is is really um, arching on, and, and what you we, what you see the potential of this land to look like? Oh yeah, I mean, land is the basis of all independence, and we have to when we think about nation building, we just again, you know, I'm sounding repetitive, and that's what I'm going to do. I'm gonna sound repetitive uh, because we we have to repeat these things over and over, even to myself. I got to repeat it, repeat it, repeat it, right? Um, but land is the basis of all all independence and we have to practice what national building looks like. Even though we ain't in the Republic of New Africa, we as revolutionaries, as people trying to be revolutionaries, as people trying to free the land, we all need to get the skills of how to till the land. You know what I'm saying? Uh, you know, it's, uh, today is the uh, independence of, of Eritrea and we was, I was watching a documentary um, on the ELF and the gorilla is literally in the trenches studying, doing political education. They is farming, <laughs> you feel me? They is making wells out of whatever resources they have to get water, right? And they fighting the war for independence. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and they taking those skills. And anytime they had to move the front lines, they took those same farming skills with them. You feel me? So the role of the gorilla is ultimately to be in service of the people. And that's the same way we have to look at it as, uh, as revolutionaries. We have to be in service to the people and build true food sovereignty, right? Which is a, a rejection of, you know, this capitalist, neoliberal WTO organization, World Trade Organization, that is all about food security, which in many ways is just a military term, right? Food security meaning they have control over the food. <laughs> they have control over the food. They talk about famines. Why is there famines? We're in the most uh, technologically advanced society, yet there's still famines. That is a product of white supremacy. That is a product of capitalism. That is a product of imperialism. Famines should not exist, but when the capitalist owns the means of production, that means they also own the food. <laughs> they also control the food. So when we see the famine happening in, in Yemen right now, the humanity being stripped away from people, literally, I mean, you see the images that, that happen, right? It's a product of capitalism. It's a product of colonialism, 
right? So for when we are, are trying to attack that, what do we need? We need food sovereignty. And to actually have food sovereignty, you know, we could put this into practice through the steps, right? Of learning how to till the land, of learning how to uh, take the produce that we have from the land and then putting that produce in the grocery box. But to truly have food sovereignty, we have to end imperialism. We have to end capitalism, right? That is, that's what has to happen. We have to free ourselves from Euro-American control. But food sovereignty is a way where we put focus on food for people. It puts values for food providers. It localizes different food systems, even though, you know, like um, in the Algerian revolution, you know, they were having to ship food from different areas of the country because certain areas of the country is where the food grows. <laughs> so, yeah. of course, it's, you know, we localize it as much as possible, but there might be times where we're interdependent on different areas, right? Uh, we know, shoot, Cuba, um, it's a small island. It ain't going to be able to produce everything that it's able to produce, but through interdependence, through mutual co cooperation, through solidarity amongst third world nations and third world people, we're able to provide for our people, right? Um, again, like what I was saying, we got to build these knowledge and we got to build these skills, Um Whatever your rank is, you go, we have to build those, build that knowledge, because um, ultimately we are going to need it. We are going to need it in this fight for liberation. And we see food being used as a weapon on the new African community. Yeah. That, that is a fact. Food is being used as a weapon on our people. We see all the chemicals that they put in the food. Right. We see uh, we go to a grocery store. You go to a corner store. Ain't no fresh produce Ain't no fresh food. Mm -hmm. Right. So that is a that's a war on our people. Right. So what we have to do is be able to fight back from that. And that's building our own farming systems. Right. That's uh, localizing our food. That's of prime importance. You feel me? And if you look at the uh, prison struggle, um, you know, they use food as a weapon against prisoners. <laughs> mm -hmm. Terrible food, you know, for Muslim prisoners, they ain't giving them no halal food. But then, you know, they use food as a weapon through hunger strike. Mm -hmm. Are you using this as a weapon against me? I'm going to use it back as a weapon against you. Mm -hmm. I'm a hunger strike and I'm going to get my conditions met because. You don't want 15 of us dying. That looks bad on you, right? Mm -hmm. So we have to understand the weapon and how it's used against us, but also how we can use it uh, to advance the new African liberation struggle, the new mm -hmm. African independence movement. Absolutely. Um, wow, this has been extremely illuminating. And I am going to pack a heavy question to wrap us up before we open up to questions. Um, so I have to shout out my girl, Selena Wilson, who's put me on this Alice Walker quote. Um, you know, the most common way people give up their power is by thinking they don't have any. And, you know, some folks are so committed to the status quo, uh, they fail to see how it limits their power and potential, right? Especially from what I read in um, a Medium article that Delancey wrote, right? In particular, uh, how 400 years of white supremacist capital oppression has actually infiltrated and affected our communities. So, you know, from Jaleel Muntakim's seminal text of We Are Our Own Liberators, you know, your podcast, all of the work that you've done, how do you practice like patience? And I know this has largely to do with your now commitment to Islam, but I'm thinking like across all this work, I know for myself, I've dealt with frustration for both my own growth and where I can do better, but then also where my people are at. And I know uh, in Jaleel Muntakin's book, he cautions us in particular uh, to not abandon black folks who need the most attention uh, and illuminating their growth. So can you tell us a little bit more about your patience, the practice of discernment, um, you know, what this book has shown you and how this text can move us forward? Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, patience hasn't always been my strong. So I, I'll admit that, you know, I think uh, about times where 
you know, I was just, uh, I think the ones who was interviewing me for a story, you see me at a protest, you know, uh, I think a car honked a horn at us, and you know, I just, you know, started kicking the car, <laughs> just <laughs> reacting, you know what I'm saying? So uh, patience and discipline, it, it go hand in hand, it go hand in hand. And, uh, you know, by the grace of Allah, you know, Islam has helped me with my patience. You know, when you were uh, fasting, all you have to do is be patient. You, you ain't, you can't move time faster. <laughs> you're going to be able to, your emotions might shift as you're fasting. But now you learn how to control your emotions while you're fasting. You know what I'm saying? So through Islam, it definitely helped me uh, become uh, more patient. Uh, Imam uh, Ali, uh, he said, be sure that there is something waiting for you after much patience to astonish you to a degree that you forget the bitterness of the pain. And I think that's a, a perfect quote, you know, of remaining steadfast and remaining patience uh, despite all odds. Because that's what we have to do. And we have to have it as a discipline. We have to have patience with our people while also pushing our people forward. Um, so that is a, a, a practice, again, a practice uh, of remaining calm, but that's what the movement calls for. You feel me? If we're just reacting based off of emotions or reacting based off of feelings, even though feelings you know, can be valid, feelings sometimes are wrong. <laughs> you might feel a certain, certain type of way, but that might not be the material reality, right? right? So we have to have that uh, critical self-reflection um, we have to be able to have spaces where we can come and criticize ourselves um, in a spirit of building ourselves up to being better, being better humans, being better organizers. That has to be fundamentally a part of the work that we're doing, right? The way we treat each other, the way we talk to each other, that is a part of the work because what good is fighting <laughs> fighting this war if we ain't treating ourselves better? Right. If we ain't treating ourselves internally better, but also treating the way we have relationships with each other, right? We just fighting for the birth the birth of a new society, which is essentially the death of your old self and the birth of a new self, a revolutionary self, right? So again, uh, when we're emotional, you know, we, we, we can just be responsive, right? We just be respond, respond, react, react, react. Um, to be a revolutionary means we have to be organized. Uh, we can't, we have to be sober-minded in our mindset. We can't just react, 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 because what is that gonna do? We've seen it in this Black Lives Matter consciousness movement where organizers is literally chasing ambulances rather than building decolonization programs in the community that will be an offensive force for new African liberation, new mm -hmm. African independence, which is chasing ambulances. I think around this mass shooting recently, I definitely check out the article that we have up on people's programs, but people oftentimes just want to react and respond. Oh, we got to get armed. Yes, we do have to get armed, but it's reactionary to just go out and start shooting. <laughs> if we look at the history, right? If we look at our history, uh, the, the BLA said there was it was too soon for armed conflict. It was too soon. Obviously, the CIA, the FBI pushed that conflict, but we have to be ready. Uh, Three-phase theory, class struggle for national unity, unity, national unity for self-government, self-government for national independence. We have to have the dialectical process that's going to lead us to a people's war, mm -hmm. that's going to lead us to independence, right? That's what has to happen. We can't just react, react, react. So that is the goal of being an organizer. That is the goal. We have to organize our people. So when they are reactive, we have a political machine. We have a political machine in the heart of the new African community, wherever that new African locale might be, that can go on the offensive for new African liberation. And yeah, Jalil's book, We Are Only Brothers, that is a foundational text. It is a foundational text for the new African independence movement. And I encourage everyone on this call to get a copy. Um, we'll drop the, someone will drop the link in there. 
I think we give antenna away for free as well, but that's a book that we have to study because what it articulates is the dialectical process of revolution. What it articulates is a program of how do we become disciplined as a revolutionary, right? How do we develop a membership conduct? How do we develop a membership codes? And what it also puts forth is Frolanon, the front for the liberation of the new African nation. And that's what we have to do. That is the call for today. That is the call for today is to develop Frolanon. That's what we must do. Our survival, our humanity as new Africans depends on that. If we say we as anti-imperialist and we say we are in solidarity with the third world, we are in solidarity and we want revolution, we must build Frolanon. We must build a front for the liberation of the new African nation because there's really only three solutions. There's only one solution, but there's three questions to a solution. Are we to integrate? Are we to assimilate? And to the United States of America, which is what we have, what we're in, what did that get us? Genocidal attacks, mass shootings. Why would we integrate into a system that is designed to kill us? The mm. second question is, uh, are we uh, to fight for a United Socialist America? That to me is a settler socialist. Mm. I, I don't want <laughs> these white socialists in control of this land. And the third question, are we going to fight for new African independence? And that's what our stance is as an organization and is outlined, right? That is outlined and we are on liberators is that we have, if land is the basis of all independence, if we know that we, you know, Islamic, we, we come from the land, Allah made us out of clay, right? Then when we die, we return to the land. We, we uh, our bones turn into dust and we return with the land and the people is a dialectical connection. For us as people to exist, for us as humanity to exist, the land has to exist. <laughs> For us to breathe, there has to be trees. For us to continue living, there has to be water, right? And if we look under the capitalist system, the capitalist system is poisoning the water. The capitalist system is poisoning the air, right? So if we are for our humanity, we have to free the land. And it's a dialectical process, class struggle for national unity. We have to build unity in our community. Our unity, our unity is more powerful than any imperialist weapon ever known to man. Our unity is more powerful than any nuclear bomb. If we had national unity, if we had pan-African unity, there would be no nuclear bomb because the CIA went and killed and assassinated Lumumba and stole uh, the materials, the raw materials needed, the uranium needed from the Congo to build the nuclear bomb. But if we were unified as Africans, as new Africans, as pan-Africans, that would have never happened. Would have never happened. Now, if we develop national unity for self-government, we begin to govern our, we, we get, begin that process of saying, okay, we can govern ourselves. We have uh, the different, we have community control in our territory. Once we realize, oh, we can govern ourselves, <laughs> the next logical fight, right? It's a dialectic, it's pretty simple at the end of the day. The mm -hmm. next logical thing is self-government for national independence, fighting a people's war to free the land from the Euro-American control. And if we want the liberation of humanity, if we want the, this world, uh, the world will still exist, but with humanity, <laughs> if we want our complete independence, the plight, the plight of the world, the plight of uh, people of color is all a result of the plight of Africa, the plight of the new African. And if we as new Africans can get free here in this land that they like to call America, if we get free here, the liberation of humanity will be next because you'll see Palestine rising up, right? <laughs> you'll see uh, uh, the continent rising up, right? 
AFRICOM, all those military bases will begin to begin uh, to get expelled. The U.S. can't fight multiple wars at once. Mm. Right. So we need to build international solidarity as a part of three phase theory. Right. And the second and third phase. Right. We need to build international solidarity so we can ultimately liberate ourselves so we can ultimately practice independence because integration. It ain't it. We've seen it. It got us Barack Obama. It got us black cops. It got Mm. us fascism. That's what we're living in. We're living in a fascist state. So ultimately, we got a free to land. That's the call of the day. That's the call of the day. Well, thank you so much. This has been my, my heart. I'm like ready to like stand up and get going. So I, I really appreciate all that you've uh, illuminated with us. Seriously, this has been, I mean, this journey is one, I think everyone is a very personal journey. And so I know for myself hearing it time and time again, that repetition piece that you spoke on is a humbling reminder that like we can only chase these dead institutions for so for so long, right? Until we're left with the reality that is facing our people. And so uh, I know there are hella questions. So I want to, answer them in the order. I've seen them in the chat and I've seen them in the Q&A box. So we'll try to com- combine some of them. We'll probably take another 10 more minutes if that's cool with everybody. Um, it's all good. We're so the- here. Yeah, we right. Well we're here. Build. Might as well keep it going. But um, <laughs> our first question is from Kat. And so they're curious on how have people's programs, both in political education, structural leadership, ensured that all forms of anti-Blackness, like colorism, fat phobia, heteronormativity, transphobia are being addressed? How would you describe the leadership of people's uh, programs? I believe are people's park. People's people's park. You said I think it's people's program. Oh but- yeah, no people's park. Oh, okay. Oh yeah, program. I mean, so we say we for the liberation of all African people, all African people through scientific socialism. We don't. We want all of our people to be free first and foremost. Because if some of us aren't free, how how are we all going to be free? how we all going to be free. And the way we employ uh, leadership and organizing um, is through democratic centralism, right? Meaning that the higher body is subjected to the subordinate, right? And it's a dialectical relationship between both. So if I'm catting off, if I'm, uh, you know, if I'm saying I'm a revolutionary nationalist, if I'm saying I'm a pan-Africanist and I'm going over there and endorsing Bernie Sanders, (laughs) the democratic centralism, then I'm reprimanded as a co-chair. I'm not following the ideology of the politic, right? We have to have structure and we have to have hierarchy. We are fighting against one of the most well-organized, most well-oiled machines known to humanity. We're fighting, this ain't an empire that's just about to crumble by itself. We're just fighting, and if it does crumble by itself, what's gonna rise? All these white nationalist militants that are already existing. That's what's gonna happen, right? So we have to have organization. There has to be hierarchy, but it isn't a, a commandist type way of thinking, right? Um, the central, right, is where all organizing decisions is made amongst the central body, right? Um, so that's how we organize is under democratic centralism, you feel me, where it's a dialectical relationship between the leadership and the center body, as well as the rank and file. We have different bureaus, right? So all the decisions is made in a circular manner, for the most part, within the bureaus of the organization, right? And that is what, that is some of the highest level of democracy. They want to talk about, oh, you vote, and that's democratic? No, what we're doing, we're coming together as an organization, right, that has membership processes because for democratic centralism to work, we have to share the same ideology. We have to understand the same type of thinking. We should all be coming with the same answer if we have the same ideology, mm-hmm. right? So we have uh, membership processes uh, and political education processes so we can develop the, the shared ideology because the ideology, again, is our strongest weapon. Mm-hmm. This is our strongest weapon, this is our strongest shield because if we don't have ideology, we're just going to be walking around doing whatever. 
Mm-hmm. But based off feelings, it's going to be uh, anarchist. It's going to be anarchy, right? So we have to have organization, organization, organization. Um, the school, you know, we as a whole, we are, we are a revolutionary cadre organization. We are, we are independent organization. So the school uh, hasn't tried to, it can't really control the program aside from uh, the garden because it's technically the school's land. We just got that land, you know. Yeah. Uh, so you already answered part of this next question. I hope that answered your question, Kat. Um, the next question is, of course, like you mentioned, co-optation from like the nation state, its relevant institutions. Um, and I'm going to kind of combine these two. So are indigenous communities involved in the food program? Uh, how do you see the relationship going between Black and indigenous people? And I'm going to pair that with the question about uh, at the end from an anonymous attendee in regards to um, the relationship like about how land back is for indigenous tribes, like how would you respond to that in regards to the new African nation? So thinking about the relationship of indigeneity in regards to um, the food program, but also what land back looks like uh, in regards to the new African nation and that of indigenous. Yeah, it's it's something that cannot be separated. If we look at uh, the plight of, of indigenous people in this land, the plight of indigenous people in this land would have never happened if it wasn't plight, the plight of the African, right? So literally the genocidal system of colonization of slavery that built up the power for these imperialist countries and this imperialist beast known as America, America would have never been created if it wasn't for the plight of Africa, right? which we say again, the liberation of the African, the liberation of the new African will ultimately liberate indigenous people, right? Um, if we look at the, the Republic of New Africa and the New African Independence Movement, it has always been in coalition and in solidarity with indigenous people. Indigenous tribes uh, and, and New Africans have worked to, to develop treaties. So oftentimes people erase that relationship that has happened historically and says that New Africans don't have the right to free the land, right? Uh, we were forced here <laughs> uh, through the process of becoming a New African through the miscegenation process, right? Many of us were, we had different religions. Uh, third of us was Muslim, the traditional African uh, religions, right? Um, we were different tribes, spoke different languages. Uh, we were forced here to this colony known as America. And through that process, some of us escaped off of the plantation and intermixed with indigenous people, right? Even in my own family, my own blood, we have indigenous, uh, indigenous uh, history because of that miscegenation process, which birthed the new African, right? So we must primarily understand that the new African has the right to be free in this land, has the right to be free in this land. What else is there? <laughs> what else is there? So we, we, fundamentally, uh, we, <laughs> we fundamentally understand that uh, for new Africans to be free, that also means that indigenous people will too be free. Uh, we don't use the term land back. Uh, we use the term free to land because if we look at a land back, uh, oftentimes land back means, okay, we give you some land back, but what does that mean? The imperialist beast is still there. The colonial system of America is still there. So we say free to land. We say free to land completely from Euro-American control. You feel me? Where America, as it stands right now, has no right to exist. Mm-hmm. Has no right to exist. So what we do, we fight back. And that doesn't make us wanting land and having independence over land. People will be reactionary and say, oh, you colonizers. That is a, a divorce from history. That is an anti-historical understanding of the plight of new Africans, 
are Jamaicans because they want independence in Jamaica after being forcibly brought to Jamaica. If they say we want a revolutionary new government, does that make them colonizers of Africans in Brazil rise up and say we want our own independence, our own nation within Brazil because we was brought here and forced in, we till this land, we bled in this land and they want to be free and they want their own independence. That does not make them colonizers. That's anti-history. That is anti-history. So this, again, this nation states of the game. This is the game of this world we are in right now. We didn't, we didn't make this world. You feel me? We, we didn't create this world, but it is our duty to liberate ourselves from the chains of this fascist, neo-Nazi, white supremacist nation. And we do that through the formation of the Republic of New Africa. That is how we become independent. That is the dialectical process of then leading to pan-Africanism, which is the unification of all African people through scientific socialism. Mm-hmm. Mm. I just want to sit with that because I feel like we've been so um, systematized to have a crabs in a barrel mentality that we can't be free with each other and be free for like our people and also ideally freeing everybody. And so I, I really appreciate that because I think now we're getting to a place where, and this is a very colonial practice, conquer, what is it? Divide and conquer, right? So it's like, they want to see us divided in the argument of who frees the land, who gets access to this land, when in reality, you just so eloquently and beautifully described it, it is inherently towards our freedom. So I, hey, I mean, are we supposed to just stay here in chains? Right, right. <laughs> what are we supposed to do? Are we supposed to be a part of uh, what this anarchist revolution that people propose? Because I don't know what an anarchist revolution is. Are we supposed to be a part of this socialist revolution? Because I'm not waiting for a white leftist, Marxist, Leninist, socialist movement. Mm. But what we are doing, we have to organize for our, our humanity. We have to be able to liberate ourselves. That is our human right. Mm. The United Nations says so. We have the right to be free. It says we have the right to national liberation. That is international law. The U.S. violates it every day because they are the ones in power. That's the hegemonic power. But we have the right to be free. It is our God-given right to be free. It is our God-given right to be independent from this Euro-American captor. We have the right to free the land. We have the right to free the land. And inshallah, it will happen in our lifetime. Say liberation in our lifetime. We must become our own liberators. We must. Our babies is relying on it. The next generations is relying on it. So that's that's the call of the day. That's the call of the day. Oh, thank you. I'm going to uh, combine these next two because I think they're geared around funding and, you know, money real. Like that's a real support the Patreon. I'm just <laughs> I'm going to die on this hill. Um, but people want to know how people's program is funded. Um, how is it sustained um, in a way that doesn't make it vulnerable or manipulated? And how is it maintained in the long term? Is there a public budget? I mean, we as a revolutionary nationalist organization, we, uh, the, <laughs> if we understand the history of, of the IRS, the history of the CIA, the history of COINTELPRO, uh, the IRS that literally helped uh, kick out Marcus Garvey, the IRS that uh, froze Huey's funds to where uh, Huey uh, was living on the street houseless. What type of sense does it make for a revolutionary nationalist organization to just give <laughs> public information about the inner workings of the organization. That, that, yeah, that doesn't, so now there isn't a public budget. There isn't a public budget. Uh, we raise funds, grassroots, grassroots level, people's programs, that's how we started. Grassroots, Cash App, um, Venmo, you feel me? Of course, through the uh, evolution of struggle, the evolution of trial and error, we have to make certain adjustments to that to sustain the movement. But the movement needs money. <laughs> the movement needs money. If we are talking about building a nation, building the new African nation, 
we're talking about millions upon billions of dollars that the movement will need to be able to create a nation, to be able to create the Republic of New Africa. That is a, that is a fact. And sometimes people can tend to get into this uh, way of thinking as like, oh, the movement doesn't need money. The movement does not need to have an economic plan. <laughs> we talking about nation building. We have to have an economic plan for our people to move forward. That, that is a fact. That, that is what has to happen. And that's where, why, what we failed on historically is not having enough finances. What happened to the Black Panther Party? It got bankrupted from the CIA. The FBI sending in infiltrators to different uh, chapters. And then they launched mass arrests and bankrupted the party. So we have to have diverse uh, tactics to be able to raise money for the movement because feeding people costs money. <laughs> this is the capitalist system we live in. Feeding people costs money. Of course, we are organizing to end this capitalist system, right? Uh, the health program, it costs money. <laughs> the supplies needed for it. The truck, the medical health clinic. You don't find that on Craigslist. <laughs> you, got, you got to raise money for that and get money for that, right? Having a, a, a warehouse, you have to raise money. You have to get money for that. So it's uh, grassroots and people funded. And of course, we need to figure out diverse mm -hmm. ways to be able to make money for the organization and to make money for the movement to build Frelinon so we can free the land from your American control. Mm. Well, thank you, thank you. I feel like sometimes you forget that we're also being surveilled. So that is a real, that's real. Um, I, the next question is from Judas in the chat. Uh, it's a little specific. So um, how do we as organizers convince our people to contend with the real possibility of having to be armed in an organized manner? And earlier you talked about, right, not like randomly just shooting without, without the knowledge. So more so like in the face of mass shootings and kind of what's been going on in reality right now in the now. Yeah, we have to, it's class struggle, right? We have to uh, wake up our people to the evils of colonialism, to the evils of capitalism, uh, to the evils of imperialism. All you put capitalism, plus racism, plus imperialism together, you get fascism, which is what you get in a Buffalo shooting. But this is this country for what it is. This is exactly what it is. It's been massacring. It's been committing genocide from the very first day of its inception. And these Europeans, before America was created, they was doing the same thing. Genocide against African peoples. Genocide against indigenous people. Right? Uh, we didn't make this world. <laughs> uh, we, we didn't make the weapons. We didn't make the guns. But this is the world that we live in. Now, ultimately, we have to pick up the gun in order to eliminate the gun. That is a, it is our human right to be able to defend ourselves from Euro-American violence. That is the reality. We just got to look outside. That, that is the reality. It's the material reality. So we have to, through this process of waking people up, through this process of political education, and we have to have our, that patience with our people and continually educate them, continually educate them. The U.S. government was just found guilty of genocide mm. by international jurists. Why can we recognize the plight of the Jewish people through the Holocaust, but we can't recognize the African Holocaust? The African Holocaust has been way bigger, way bigger than the Jewish uh, Holocaust. That is a fact. So why don't we see our struggle? Why aren't we fighting? What, what, what stopped the Holocaust? World War II. <laughs> you know, so this is, this is the uh, material reality is that nonviolence doesn't work. Nonviolence died when they assassinated Martin Luther King, when the US government, the CIA, the FBI all colluded to assassinate all the same beast, same octopus, right? Mm -hmm. They all work together, all the different departments, all the military, 
<laughs> the army. Uh, they were even recruited the mafia, right? We, we have the right to defend ourselves and we have the right to ultimately go on our offensive, but we have to follow the dialectical process. We still in phase one, class struggle for national unity, mm. right? We have to draw the lines of demarcation against the neo-colonial agents, you feel me, that mm. are in our community, right? The black cops, the Barack Obamas, the Kamala Harris's, right? The black people trying to be capitalists. I say trying to be capitalists because in order to be a capitalist, you must own the means of production. You don't own the means, you don't own shit. <laughs> you know, you feel me? You don't, you don't. You ain't a capitalist, you don't own the means of production, right? So we have to, uh, class consciousness, we have to show people the way. And the way we show the people the way is through decolonization programs, which calls out the contradictions, right? It shows people that there is an alternative to this white supremacist nation. We can't be mad at people for not knowing there's a, a solution when we, as the quote unquote professional revolutionary, hasn't shown them a solution. So that's through Frelinon, the Front for the Liberation of New African Nations, through cadres developed throughout this so-called United States of America. That's how we begin. That's how we begin to show the people that there's a way. That's how we build national unity. Mm. Beautifully said, thank you. Um, we have a few more questions um, and I also see the time. So before I hop into the next few set of questions, I if folks have to leave, I want to leave you with a quote, a few updates, and I, we can keep going into the questions, but I just want to make sure I get these to folks uh, before they hop off and have some dinner or go to bed or wake up, depending on what part of the world you're calling in from. Um, so we have a checkout quote that we want to leave you all with and then a few updates. Um, so power without love is reckless and abusive and love without power is sentimental and anemic. Uh, power at its best is love implementing the demands of justice and justice it's at its best is power correcting everything that stands against love. I have to personally shout out Emmanuel because this is his quote. So if you wanna illuminate with the group what, what you wanted to have them take away with this. Um, for me, I think when I think about organizing, it, it's about those three principles. There's other principles of course, but it's about power, love and justice combining together to create the vision that he's, that um that we're speaking about right now uh, it's not just about being powerful uh, it's not about being reactive it's not just about caring for one another or it's not just about um seeking justice it's all these things merging into one another and it's a slow process but it's a process that's worth um investing your time and effort in so you know to revolutionize others you got to revolutionize yourself and it's by seeking these pieces and kind of combining all that together so um yeah so that's that's the checkout quote but we still have more questions. Yeah, uh, and I, uh, I wanna definitely wanted those. I also wanna add in too, uh, folks, uh, we selected 10 folks in attendance to uh, get a copy of Jaleel Muntakim's We Are Our Own Liberators. You'll definitely be getting an email. So please look out. If you don't, we have to go to the next person, um, but we'll be sending that out after today. And the link is also in the chat. Um, I'll repost it here so that you all can get a copy if you feel so inclined, although we highly recommend. So feel inclined to say yes. Um, that, but, that's a book that, you know, is meant to be read in groups and cadres and to develop cadres. So it ain't a book just to read by yourself. You feel me? It's a book to read in community amongst your people, amongst your partners. And the end goal is we have to build these cadres. We have to build cadre organizations to build front on. So read, read We Are Own Liberators with that in mind and read it over and over and over again, because each time you read it, you, it's going to have a different impact. It's going to have a different impact. And if it doesn't the first time, the second time is going to have a different one. The third time is going to have a different one. 
Um, so that, that's my encouragement with the book as well. But that's 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 that revolutionary handbook. You feel me? That's, that's how that that is the marching orders of today. It's articulated, and we are on the brighter. So we we got to study it because our life depends on it. Mm. Mm, thank you. Okay, so the next question um, is, uh, so I guess in regards to the inner working of the org, it was more so less about um, how the org works, but how so many grassroots initiatives get hijacked by 501c3s and NGOs, uh, prevention methods or theory helps this person personally, uh, helps, yeah, helps me personally copycat careers take advantage. That was the purpose of the question. So I guess more so how people's program avoids, you know, having to get, I guess, kind of co-opted into the system of NGO 501c3 for tactics of survival or for careerists in their interests. Yeah, I mean, we we at people's programs, we put politics in command. We study, study, study and are always studying and always aim to put the principles that guide revolutionary nationalism, uh, the principles that guide pan-Africanism, the principles that guide revolution into practice. That is what people's programs is about. If we aren't doing that, the people will become aware of it. <laughs> but again, we have grassroots decolonization programs. When we as an organization, we're not, <laughs> we are for the people. We are for the people. Of course, we see these different uh, fronts that the CIA puts up. And we, if we understand our history, we know that the CIA creates uh, a lot of various fronts and facades um, of organizing, um, of so-called organizing to be able to co-op movements. But the way we fight co-optation is ideology. Again, ideology is our greatest shield. You don't, <laughs> you don't go against the putting politics in command if we is constantly studying and constantly drilling the ideology. But again, the nonprofit industrial complex, it is real and it was designed to co-op the movement. It was designed to co-op the movement, uh, to privatize to the neoliberal agenda, right? But we reject that. We have to we have to reject that type of co-optation, but also have various strategies within the movement. Within the movement, that's what we have to have. Ideology, principle based. Appreciate you clarifying. Thank you. As in the in regards to the question. So the last question we have is uh, facing struggle with middle class burge, bougie <laughs> Muslims. Sorry, I cannot speak today. Uh, seem to, who seem to align with white liberals at the cost of the working class. Chosen the Majid. Uh, any advice? Yeah, I mean, that goes against the, the principles <laughs> uh, espoused in Islam. So it's going against the religion. You feel me? Uh, as Muslims, we is obligated to fight <laughs> against oppression wherever we see it. That's a, a religious obligation. Uh, zakat. <laughs> we want for humanity what we might have for ourselves. We want, I want for what I have, for what I have, I want that for my brother and vice versa which means this is literally Zakata's pre-socialism, <laughs> right? We are supposed to uh, give money our back to purify our own money, purify ourselves, right? So to be capitalist, Islam is diametrically opposed to capitalism. <laughs> capitalism is haram. That's a fact. That is a fact. So the, of course, the dominant ideology of the society, which is capitalism, is neoliberalism, is going to find its way again, uh, find its way into the mosque. It's going to find its way into the masjid. But if we, it's following the principles of Islam, if we are following Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's word, <laughs> we is fighting for revolution. We is fighting to free the land from corruption, right? That's what we got to do. So use the, use the deen to show them how they wrong. <laughs> use Allah's word to show them how they wrong. 
Because ultimately, as Muslims, we have a, a religious obligation to free the land. We have a religious call to free the land. We have a religious call to fight jihad against ourselves and against this imperialist colonizer known as the United States of America. And we spell it with three Ks. Well, thank you. That is our last question. Um, and I feel like it's a beautiful note to leave us on. Uh, if I'm missing anything, or if there's any last words anyone wants to share, uh, I just want to say thank you for carving the time to chat with us, illuminate. I hope this has been, um, I was so nervous and now I feel a little bit more calm, but I'm nervous again. So I apologize, but I've just been so excited uh, looking forward to this. And I hope, you know, the point of this is really to take away seeds that people can plant into their own communities. We've got people calling in from all over the world. You know, this was supposed to be a Bay Area focus a, a initiative that we had proposed in this grant and it opened up a global dialogue, which just speaks to the attraction and reality that our people have globally as a struggle and the work that you and many other organizers do to bring us together. So I just wanna say thank you uh, for being that hub and that illuminating light and many of the other folks on the call who are continuously doing the good work. So I just wanna say thank you. Yeah, thank you all. Appreciate y'all for uh, uh, being in here. You know, we just gotta continue this conversation and ultimately, you know, we gotta get outside, uh, lace our shoes up and hit the ground and get to building decolonization program. So, you know, anything I positive, anything positive that I said, you know, I get that, that that's a loss of Hanawa Ta'awa. Anything negative I said or a rub personal wrong way, it's my own personal uh, problem that I, that I got to work to evolve and become better and struggle against myself to continue to improve. So again, I appreciate you all for uh, for being here. Read We Are Own Liberators, read it again, and then take the politic and put it into command. Continue to study, continue to study because our life, our lives, our people's humanity depends on it. Appreciate y'all. Salam alaikum. Thank you. Thank you.